Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're moving along in the book of Genesis in this series we're calling Unglued. Now Genesis 6 through 8 deals with the flood of Noah. Um, a lot of people, when they think of Noah's flood, they, they wonder, what is this all about? A flood taking over the entire world? And as we look at the, the flood according to the scriptures, and uh, one thing that we do practice here as a church is we make our way through the Bible. We systematically work through books of the Bible to understand what God's Word's saying. We believe that the Bible is indeed God's Word. So the Bible presents Noah's flood as a real event. It was universal. It was also miraculous. Uh, there is no natural way to reduplicate what God did in Noah's flood. But how is that possible? Well, think about it for a moment. If God created the universe, why couldn't he do a miracle like that? I know that sounds maybe a little too simplistic, but if he is who the Bible says that he is, anything is within his abilities. He's all-powerful. Now, I don't want to fixate all morning on God's abilities. In fact, I'm more interested in this section of text in asking the question of motive. Why would God send a flood that would wipe out every living thing on the earth? Why would God wipe out humankind, animal life, plant life? Why would he hit the delete button on creation? That's a question now, isn't it? And that's a question that I see answered here in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. But before we get to the text, listen to this story from the late Dr. R.C. Sproul. Now, he was teaching a class of 250 college freshmen, and at the first day of class, he explained the assignments. There would be certain term papers. They would have to turn them in the end of each month, one in September, one October, and then one in November. And so, he was very clear. He said to them, there's going to be no extensions. You're late. You get an F. So at the end of September, 225 students dutifully turned in their papers while 25 approached him with fear and trepidation. We're so sorry. We didn't make the proper transition from high school. We could get away with a little bit more, Dr. Sproul. Would you let us off the hook this time? Well, he listened to their pleas of mercy and their begging for forgiveness, and he gave them an extension and warned them, don't you be late next month. Well, the end of October rolled around, and this time 200 students turned in their papers on time. While 50 students showed up empty-handed, oh, please, Dr. Sproul, it was homecoming weekend. We didn't have time to turn in our papers. He warned even stronger. This is it. No excuses next time. You will get an F. Well, the end of November came and only 100 students turned in their papers. The other 150 students casually said, Oh, Doc, we'll get it to you eventually. Dr. Sproul said, Sorry, it's too late now. You get an F. The students howled in protest. That's not fair. Okay, Dr. Spohr replied. You want justice, do you? 
Here's what's just. You get an F for every paper that you turned in late. That was the rule, right? Dr. Sproul, reflecting on this, said that the students had quickly taken my mercy for granted. They assumed it. When justice suddenly fell, they were unprepared for it. It came as a shock, and they were outraged by it. Well, as we come into Genesis, we've been making our way, like I said. We saw that God created a perfect world. But when sin entered into the world, when everything became unglued, there's this degradation process. Eve uh, Eve was deceived, right? She sinned. Adam knowingly sinned. God couldn't talk Cain out of sinning. And uh, Lamech writes this braggadocious poem about a young man that he's killed. But none of those things caused God to hit the delete button. But here in Genesis 6, 1 through 8, we see that this world is becoming more and more unglued. The world is becoming a cesspool. Look at verses 1 and 2 and then verse 4 with me. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Verse 4 The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, just in case you don't know this, these are some of the most contested, debated verses in the Bible. And certainly in Genesis for that matter. Bible students, and we're talking going back to pre-Christ times, have asked the question, who are the sons of God that married the daughters of men, and who are these Nephilim that the Bible's talking about? I mean, what in the world? Well, before we deal with this question, let's just note some things that we can pretty clearly see in the text. Uh, Those last phrases in verse 2 describe the nature of these marriages. They're based purely on physical attraction. A man sees a woman, he says, I like her, and he takes her. Kind of reminds me of those old uh, caveman cartoons that I used to see as a boy. The caveman would come up and bonk the woman over the head and drag her off to his cave. I mean, it sounds like that as I'm looking at this text. Many commentators also suggest that the phrase, they took their wives, any they chose, suggests that these sons of God were making huge harems. So Lamech wanted two wives. Well, who said you have to stop at two? Why not 10, 20, 30, more? Who knows? Note that this is a finger on the pulse of culture. Moses is giving us a a snapshot of the degradation. He's saying, look, people, things have gotten really bad. This place is spiraling out of control. Now let's ask the big question, what are the sons of God and the daughters of men? Well, There are three dominant views, and I'm going to kind of run you through those. I don't normally do this, but I think it's important for you to kind of understand 
where we're coming from here. The first view is a view that was uh, made popular by Augustine in his book, The City of God, and it became a very popular Christian view uh, starting in the 300s or so. This view suggests that the godly line of Seth, the sons of God, married the ungodly line of Cain, the daughters of men. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, didn't we? So in this view, the flood comes because there's this almost universal compromise going on in mankind. And uh, when I first studied this passage, I was uh, very comfortable with this view. I liked it. Uh, It's neat. It's clean. It's simple. But it certainly uh, seems to have um, some evidence with it, uh, but I'm not sure if it is the view. The second view is the sons of God describes tyrannical rulers who are oppressing those who are underneath their rules. So you can think of kind of like dominant chieftains and they're going out and they're violently taking women and bringing them into their harem. Uh, This one I think has the least biblical support, um, but it is certainly a dominant view that people hold. A third view, the oldest view, suggests that the sons of God refers to angels who rebelled against God, what we call demons, possessed men, married women, and gave birth to Nephilim, who roamed the earth as strong, violent tyrants. Some have suggested that these Nephilim are giants. Uh, There are translations that would refer to them as that, but I think the natural reading of the passage suggests that these are just strong warriors who used violence to dominate their way in the world. Now I know when you hear something like that, demon possession, demonized marriage, sounds bizarre, absurd. Let's do two things. Let's talk about the biblical support for this view, and then let's talk about the Christian, or let's talk about any kind of worldview assumption that would cause us to say that something like that could be absurd. Um, So let's begin by looking at the view. Like I said, it's the oldest view. So Jewish scholars, even pre-Christ, held this view. Uh, In the Old Testament, the normal meaning of that term, sons of God, uh, is angels. For example, when you look at Job chapter 1, verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came and presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them too. This is clearly the angelic realm that we're talking about here. In fact, three times in Job, the sons of God are referred to as angels. There's also certain New Testament passages that suggest that the fallen angels were punished for their activity during the days of Noah. Uh, for example, 1 Peter 3.19-20 speaks of Jesus preaching upon his death to spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now the word for spirits, the Greek word for that, is used in the Bible only to describe supernatural beings which would suggest that fallen angels are what we're talking about in Genesis chapter 6. I'd also commend to you, if you want to do some personal study of your own, to look at 2 Peter 2, 4, and 5, Jude 6, both of which seem to be describing some situation where fallen angels were involved. So just to restate, 
It appears that Genesis 6 is teaching that fallen angels have possessed men and they have corrupted marriage. Uh, Why would they do such a thing? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, remember when we were looking at Genesis chapter 3.15, we saw that God had pronounced a judgment on Satan that a seed of the daughter, uh, a seed from Eve would come and crush the serpent's head. So if Satan can't destroy uh, this seed by having Cain kill Abel, why not demonize marriage? Now let's talk about a worldview for a minute. You know, even if I'm wrong on this interpretation, I think it's important to be clear on the Christian worldview. I don't want to hide cards from people in the room. Maybe some of you are exploring faith this morning and this kind of sounds a little over the top. You're thinking to yourself, well, I'm just trying to like, discern whether or not God exists and who this Jesus guy is. And now we're talking about demon possession this morning. Well, I never want you to make a decision about the Christian worldview without fully understanding what it is. And the Christian worldview very clearly says that there is a God. He is all-powerful. He is supreme. He is beautiful, magnificent, and all, all, all the superlatives that you can think of. There is also an enemy of God named Satan. There are angels and there are demons. There is a spiritual realm. Gordon Wenham, a respected biblical scholar, notes that if the modern reader finds this story incredible, that reflects a materialism. Materialism means that I only believe what I can see, what I can touch, what I can feel. He continues that tends to doubt the existence of spirits, good or ill. But those who believe that the Creator could unite Himself to human nature in the virgin's womb will find that this story is not intrinsically beyond belief. Now, I get it. We want to know um, what is happening in the world. But the Bible and, I think, life shows us that there is a spiritual realm that we cannot see, but that is interacting in this world. Let me talk to you a little bit about Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He was uh, in an article where he was interviewed, A Contested Universe in Christianity Today. Uh, Erwin Lutzer is a longtime pastor of the historic Moody Church in downtown Chicago. And he was interviewed in this article. So I'm not talking about some TV evangelist that's talking about how he had some interaction with a demon and now send in all your money. I'm talking about Erwin Lutzer here. Okay, 30 years, historic Moody Church. He was asked, how would you describe to someone who has little experience with church what spiritual warfare is? Luther replied, I would explain it by saying we have to understand that the material world is not the only reality. There's a spirit world. And all the spirits are not good ones. Many people, even outside the church, accept that nowadays, just witness the television that we watch that deal with paranormal activity. If you help people understand that there are spirits and some are evil, and we must actually stand against them, I think most people would connect with that. And in this article, Luther recalls a personal interaction that he had had with a demon-possessed woman. Now, when I had attended Moody Theological Seminary, he told this story in our chapel service when he was preaching on spiritual warfare. The story involves a girl named Laura who was causing serious problems in the church's college ministry. She was creating conflict and dividing people and slandering people. She had this pattern of going around and trying to break up friendships and accusing people of things, even slandering. It was just what she wanted to do, I guess. 
Lutzer started to counsel her, and it became clear that there was a spirit beyond Laura that was involved. They tried to speak to the spirit and asked, what is your name? And through the mouth of Laura, a voice spoke back to Dr. Lutzer, what, are you going to use Ephesians 6 on me? Now, Ephesians 6, if you're not familiar with that passage, is a passage on spiritual warfare. The voice was cruel, sarcastic, and he couldn't get anywhere in the conversation. Well, sometime later, it was late at night, and uh, Dr. Lutzer was about to go to bed. He was called at 11 o'clock by Laura. And on the other end of the phone, Laura explained to him that she had been fighting Satan all evening, but she thought that she had finally found some freedom. Dr. Lutzer said, that's great. Let me, let me pray for you and ask God's blessing so that you can go to bed tonight. And as he prayed, the Spirit took over her vocal cords. In my chapel service, Dr. Lutzer told us that he once again asked the Spirit its name, and the Spirit responded back, my name is Love. Sent chills down my spine when I heard that. Among other things, it said to him, I caused Laura to hate you so that she wouldn't hear a thing that you've been saying at church. Laura didn't find freedom that night, but years later she sent Dr. Lutzer a fantastic letter in the mail. She thanked him for the work that he did with her, even though she wasn't delivered. She said that she went to another church and discovered that there was some abuse in her background, and because she refused to give up the hatred that had been brewing in her heart for years, she could not be freed. But once she finally decided to deal with the sin of hate the demonic activity stopped. Now listen, we do live in a contested universe. It's clear in the Bible, and I know many people who have interfaced with this in one way or another, and there's several truths that we can rest upon. First, God is more powerful than Satan. You have to know that. This is not an equal, balanced kind of match going on here. God is infinitely more powerful than Satan is. Second, as Dr. Lutzer puts so well, Satan needs God's permission even to wiggle. And thirdly, Satan is best fought within the context of community. There is safety in numbers. It's not supposed to be just you and Satan. It's supposed to be you and your Christian brothers and sisters uh, led by the Holy Spirit and Satan. And so this is the situation this is how I see it in Genesis 6. We have the demonization of marriage. We have violence and corruption that's spreading like wildfire. And as we see here in verse 3, we also have a God who is starting to lose patience. Look at what the text says. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now there's two ways of looking at this passage uh, there's one view that says that God's placing a time limit on the lifespan of people. There's a second view that says this 120 years is a grace period where God's giving people the opportunity to repent and turn back to him before he sends this worldwide catastrophic disaster. Now, I've gone back and forth. Uh, I, I feel like every single interpretive crux in this passage, I'm like, I have no idea. Uh, but as I continue to study it, I found that I was landing on the grace period. 
Uh, when you look at uh, Genesis 5.32, we're told that Mo, uh, Noah's 500 years old. And then when you go over to Genesis 7, verse 6, uh, we're told that he's 600 years old. So there's this, this gap of 100 years-ish involved here. Um, up until now, think about how God's dealt with people. His spirit has protected mankind from self-destruction. He's put people on this earth to call upon the name of the Lord. Remember that after Enosh was born, people started to call upon the name of the Lord. And then Enoch also proclaimed to the people, he prophesied in their own day, there's a coming destruction. Now it seems that God's giving people 120-year warning. He's incredibly patient. Peter tells us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Yet eventually, it is possible for man to reach the point of no return, and we need to take that warning seriously. Think again of the story of the students in the late term papers, right? You might come to God once or twice and say, God, I will trust Jesus eventually. Just let me kind of take control of my life. Let me steer the ship for a while. Let me go out and sow my wild oats and have my fun, and then I'll come back and I will trust Jesus after that. You might come to God twice. You might come to God three times and say the same thing, but eventually God will say enough is enough. His ask of us is simple and it's non-demanding. He wants you to accept grace and mercy in his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to cover your sins. It was the most precious gift that he could give you. Most precious. More precious than even the breath of life that you hold in your body. God's own son. And we are living in a period of grace where people can be saved from their sins, forgiven by the, the, the blood of Jesus Christ, by placing their faith in him. But Paul tells us in Acts 17, 30 and 31, God overlooked people's ignorance, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Don't wait endlessly to decide to follow Jesus. Don't say that tomorrow's the better day. Today is always the right day to trust him. Tomorrow is always the wrong day because tomorrow is always too risky. There is nothing to gain in waiting. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. So as we move forward in this passage, we see two hearts revealed to us. Uh, we first see the heart of humanity. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. Now, if you've been following along in this series, in Genesis chapter 1, God looks at creation and he says what? It is good. And then when he created humankind, he says it is what? Very good. But now he looks on, and what does he see? Total corruption. 
Nowhere else in the Bible do we have a, a clearer verse that expresses the doctrine of total depravity. This is the reality that we are far more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Now, I'm like you. I'm like anybody else. I, I want to believe that I'm a good person, okay? And believe me, when I go on Facebook and I see some of your crazy lives out there, I think I'm a good person. And you're probably thinking the same thing when you're looking on my Facebook. However, the Bible says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Some of you read a passage like this and, and you come from that kind of background where you're like, I get it. I get it. I need salvation. I need Jesus in my life. Uh, we were just at that event Friday night with Robin Farnsworth and, and she was talking about coming out of that kind of background. But some of us, uh, we might think to ourselves, I don't have that kind of story. I, I don't feel like I need God as desperately as someone else does. I think of this blog, Rebecca, she shares her upbringing. She said, I came to Christ when I was very young. For almost as long as I can remember, I have been a crooked arrow being made straight rather than a crooked arrow spinning wildly out of control. My testimony doesn't start with, I was a teenage prostitute, drug-dealing felon, but God saved me. Nope. I was a naughty five-year-old, and that's about the worst I can do. But Rebecca was just as lost as any other person. The doctrine of total depravity is the great equalizer because when you compare the terrorist to the corporate executive who is under indictment, both equally need God's grace. Tim Challies, a pastor and theologian, explains that Scripture teaches us that we are not sinners merely by degree of our depravity, but because of the extent of our depravity. So if you're thinking of it in terms of degree, that means that someone is as sinful as they could possibly be. Uh, and let's just be honest, we look out in the world and we see people that are much more sinful by degree, right? Right? Hitler is not like the five-year-old that stole a lollipop. But when we think about it in terms of extent, total depravity means that the whole person has been affected by sin. Their mind, body, spirit, motives, thoughts, they're corrupt. They're contrary to God. Apart from being changed entirely by Jesus Christ, we are helpless to please God. You see, it's only by seeing how unglued and sinful the human heart is that I can understand my need for grace. How much I need Jesus to come into my life and glue it back together again. You only truly appreciate the depths of God's love when you recognize how far he was willing to stoop to grasp you and me. Now let's look at God's heart for a moment. Verses 6 and 7. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 7 tells us how God responds to human sin. I will blot out man. The Hebrew word blot out means to erase by washing. It's a total cleansing. 
You can think of it like this. Say you made um, old Steve Dager pretty salty at you, and he comes to your house and writes graffiti all over the place. What would you do? Well, you might get a little mad at him back, right? You'd also probably go and get yourself a nice power washer from Bradford's Hardware, and you would go out there and you would try to remove that graffiti from your house. Now, that's how God feels about his creation. But we're not just talking about graffiti here with God's creation. No, this is a dangerous mold that has crept into the wood, sheetrock, flooring, and even the furniture and clothing. This is a, a tear-down and start things all over again kind of situation. And we must realize that good and evil cannot cohabitate in some kind of balanced harmony with one another. You know that, that yin and yang philosophy that exists out there? That does not fit with the reality that we see in this world. You see, the Bible better expresses the worldview that evil will corrupt everything. It's like toxic sludge. Once it touches the human heart, it takes over the human heart. Once it comes in small degree, it wants to spread and engulf everything. Sin wants all or nothing. And God's response to this type of attack is total eradication. If you want to worship a God that is good, then you must also worship a God who contends with evil in every form. He can't sweep some of it under the rug because, you know, we find it pleasing and we say to ourselves, well, that's not as big of a deal as other things. He has to make the rules in order for the universe to be fair. Otherwise, everyone subjectively makes the rules and what happens to the rules? Well, there turns out to be no rules at all. He also can't let some people off the hook and hold other people accountable. That would be unfair, unjust. No, if you want to worship a good God, you must worship a God who destroys evil, who deals with it, who takes it on every time. But notice that he doesn't take a twisted pleasure in dealing with evil. Verse 6, it grieved him to his heart. That's raw emotion. I recently spoke to a father whose son is a heroin addict and lives on the streets, and he couldn't talk about the situation without weeping. It, it grieved him to his heart. He was so pained over it. It was like a raw, open wound in his deepest place. That's how God feels about human sin. In the Bible, God does not grieve because he later recognizes that he made a mistake. God never makes a mistake. Even when he created a man and a woman who had the potential to sin. Tim Keller rightly states, if you have a God infinite and powerful enough to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite and powerful enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing that evil. He has his reasons, but it doesn't mean that he has to enjoy watching it. We worship a God who weeps over human pain, human suffering, human evil. I think of Jesus standing before the tomb of his good friend Lazarus, and he's weeping. He's crying. And just a couple of days before, he says to his disciples, we're heading over there, and we're going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why would he cry? 
because he's looking at his mortal enemy, death, and he's seeing another casualty. His friend that he knew is lying dead in the grave, and, and he's seeing all of that human misery that surrounds death, and it breaks his heart. Death should break the heart. My friends, this is the heart of God. He will contend with evil, but he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. His heart is that all should repent and be saved. And as we shall see in verse 8, God always graciously provides an escape clause. Verse 8 is this tiny little phrase at the end of this section that is so dark. It's like darkness has enshrouded everything, but there's this little pinprick of light. And the light starts shining through and making its way into the darkness. Look at verse 8 with me. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word translated favor actually means grace. It's interesting to note that the Hebrew word comes from the root word meaning to bend down or to stoop. So in one sense, grace means that God stoops to meet us where we're at. He gives us what we do not deserve and sustains us through this life. Don't read these verses and think to yourself, oh, that Noah boy, he was sure a good guy. He was better than anyone else living in that time. He's a cut above the rest. Noah didn't earn anything. No one can earn grace. If we earn God's grace, then it would no longer be grace. Instead of saying that Noah found grace, we should probably say grace found Noah. Now let's make a couple of important observations about grace. Uh, The first thing that we see is that God gives grace even at the darkest hour. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for coming into the darkest hour and giving grace. The world is rushing towards judgment, yet God gives grace to one man. Now, what does this tell us? Never count someone out. Never count yourself out. Never say of yourself, I'm too far gone. I've kind of crossed that line, and now there's no hope for me. That's impossible. No one is beyond the reach of God. He's all-powerful. End of story. And never think in your head that somebody else is too far gone. I don't care if you've been praying for this person for 10 years, 20 years. God's grace can poke through that enshrouded darkness and enter into their world. He is the God of grace. So don't stop pursuing. Don't stop praying. Don't stop believing that God can work in that situation. And dare to believe that God loves that person infinitely more than you ever could. Tim Keller says that the gospel is this. We are far more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Friends, let go of that God that you are told about who is capricious, angry, judgmental. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, we're told by John, is light. He cares about what is right. He will contend with evil. But he takes no pleasure in it because he is love. He pursues broken and lost sinners. 
from the first verses of the Bible, God enters into the sinful world and he goes on a search and rescue mission. That's the God we're talking about this morning. Secondly, it is only by grace that we can escape God's judgment. Was Noah better? No, we said that, right? But Hebrews 11:7 tells us that he responded to God's gracious warning by faith. It's only by faith that a person is ever made right with God. You can define grace like this. It is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. It is God coming to our rescue through Jesus when we are trapped in our own sin. Think of it like this. As an analogy, you're a coal miner in Pennsylvania. And today, you are working 240 feet underground, and by accident, while you're working down there, someone pierces a wall of an abandoned mine shaft. Suddenly, millions of gallons of water rush towards you, and you and your co-workers are running around frantically. You're trying to find some place to make yourself safe. And as you're frantically searching about, you're you're, you're realizing that there is no exit. There's no way for you to get to the end of the shaft. Now you're desperate. You're clamoring over rocks. You're frantically searching for air pockets. You find one. All of you squeeze in and you're gasping for breath and the cold water is chilling you to the bones and you're down in the deep darkness of the cave. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You can't dig your way out. You can't suddenly grow gills and breathe underwater. You're trapped. Unless someone far above does not come down to your rescue, you will die where you are. And that is exactly what happens. Far above, there are frantic Uh, rescuers working tirelessly, endlessly to drill holes down, sending hot air that keeps you warm and pushes back the rising waters. Unknown to you, hundreds of people are working together to dig down uh, to provide you with this rescue shaft. And eventually they break through to where you are trapped. And they lower down a capsule and they lift you up to safety. When you were trapped, they came for you. When you could do nothing, They rescued you. When you had nearly breathed your last breath, they dug through and found you. Someone from far above came down to your rescue. Romans 5, 6, and 8 tells us this. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. We were trapped in sin and living in darkness. The waters of judgment were rising around us. There was nothing we could do to help ourselves. If, if someone did not come from above, we would be lost forever. But someone did come. His name is Jesus. He dug down to the depths where we were. And he set us free. He came to give us God's grace. Would you bow your heads with me?